Mr. Trump, after we published a story, putting his net worth at $2.9 billion, came out in, in the Daily Mail, and he said I was a dopey kid and wet behind the ears. This episode is brought to you by Nadex, the binary options exchange. Binary options let you limit your risk and trade stock indices, commodities, forex, and more from a single account. Nadex is a CFTC-regulated exchange with transparency, free market data, and fairness guaranteed. The future of trading is here now at nadex.com. Futures, options, and swaps trading involves risk and may not be appropriate for all investors. Hi, and welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a podcast about the global economy. It is Thursday, November 12th, and I'm Tori Stilwell, an economics reporter with Bloomberg News in D.C., and I'm joined this week by my co-host, Aki Ito, our editor for Benchmark in San Francisco, and Dan is taking the day off to prepare for his big move to New York. So it's just me and you, Aki. Hey, Tori. How's it going? Pretty good. Do you want to tell everyone about your Hawaiian adventure? Oh my gosh, yeah. I almost called in from Hawaii today where I was on vacation, but sadly, I'm now back in reality. While you were in Hawaii, did you have a chance to follow some of the riveting monetary policy proceedings that happened? (laughs) I did see this one, which definitely surprised me. It went, God wants Yellen to delay rate hike to spring, lawmaker says. Um, This was Brad Sherman, who is a California Democrat in the House of Representatives, and it was at a congressional hearing where lawmakers were asking Janet Yellen, Fed chair, all these questions. Let's play the tape. God's plan is not for things to rise in the autumn. As a matter of fact, that's why we call it fall. Nor is it God's plan for things to rise in the winter through the snow. God's plan is that things rise in the spring. And so if you want to be good with the Almighty, you might want to delay until May. Okay, so Tori, was that the the nuttiest thing you've ever heard in a congressional hearing? Yeah, no, that was the best. I think that just that's just like quote of the century in terms of monetary (laughs) policy. I don't know. Maybe there are better quotes, but incredible. Yeah. And we should also note that after the hearing, Brad Sherman went on Twitter and said, don't actually think God has an opinion on monetary policy, but if she did, she with a capital S, she would agree that the FOMC shouldn't increase rates in winter. Yeah, I think next time maybe we could like make a sacrifice to Apollo or something oh, like that. Like get some other deities involved here. You know what I'm saying? Get all the gods on our side. Oh my gosh, yeah. So the context of this is that the Federal Reserve is about to raise interest rates. A lot of people think that this interest rate hike is going to come in December next month. So, uh, you know, Yellen is starting to come under pressure from a lot of lawmakers to delay that. Um, and that's not a surprise, right? It's it's not every day that monetary policy is involved in these divine discussions, but it's It's no surprise at all that a lot of people want interest rates to stay at zero forever. At the same time, a lot of people are pushing for interest rates to 
be hiked sooner rather than later, especially some of the more conservative leaning legislators who think that the Fed is is really playing with fire here. And they got a little bit more ammunition uh, or I guess maybe God has a little bit working against him or her. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> the jobs report came in uh, pretty strong for October. Payrolls were the strongest this year, two hundred seventy-one thousand, and wages were up two point five percent from the year before. And that is a clear break from the wage growth pattern that we've seen since the recovery started. Really great news there. And if the trend of higher wages continues, that'd be great news because it'd help alleviate some of the increase in income inequality that we've seen over the past few years. And, you know, we've been hearing a lot about income inequality. Angus Deaton, who we spoke with a couple of weeks back, won the Nobel Prize this year after doing research on it. Hershiko cited it late last month as something that's actually hurting their sales. And it seems like every U.S. presidential candidate is being asked what they do to fix it. Tori, on the show, we've talked about average wages, we've talked about median wages, but we haven't really talked about the fact that the fates for the rich and the poor, the people who are on opposite ends of the spectrum, have been really different in how they're diverging. So uh, hopefully for today's episode, we'll be able to talk about what it takes to be rich in America today. Well, let's talk a little bit more about these income tiers for the, you know, quote, rich and the quote, poor. Uh, Let's break those down a little bit. And we talked to our data guru, Wei Lu. She's based in New York and crunches just incredible amounts of census data for us. She's just amazing at it. And she told me that Bloomberg generally defines rich as the top 20% of incomes. And in, in 2014... You were, by that definition, you were rich if you made a little over $112,000, if that's what your household income was. By contrast, the bottom 20%, you're in that bottom 20% if your household made about $21,500. So there's about a $100,000 difference. Right. It's pretty big. And poverty at the way low end of the spectrum. A single person is living in poverty if they make about $11,770 or less a year. So I feel like that's really low for the poverty line. I mean, $11,000 a year? It depends on how many people are living in the household, too. The more people you have, the, the threshold gets a little higher. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's mind-blowing that someone could, could survive on that limited amount of money you know tori why does it matter if the rich are earning a bigger share of the pie the way they have been over the last 20 years i mean if the pie is getting bigger and on average people are earning more does it really matter if some people are taking more and more of the pie than others i think the main reason people are concerned about it is because we know that poor people spend a much larger proportion of their incomes and their paychecks than rich people do. And to kind of illustrate this, I have some data, of course. <laughs> um, and it's it's actually kind of striking. The first time I looked at it, I, I got it mixed up because the numbers are so crazy. But so for the lowest 20th percentile of income, their income before taxes was about $10,000 in the year ended like June 2014. Mm-hmm. This is coming from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So about $10,000, think of that. Their average annual expenditures for that same amount of time was about $23,000. So they're going in like huge amounts of debt here based on their income. Mm-hmm. Um, by contrast, the highest 20th percentile, 
their income before taxes is about 166,000 and they're spending about 101,000. Um so much smaller share. Mm. So they're just they're just not spending as much. Right. And they spend on totally different things. Um, poor people often spend much more money on food and housing, whereas wealthier people will funnel a lot more money into things like pensions and insurance. Um, so a lot of economists have talked about this as a reason as to why the recovery may have been so weak, um, because we've got you know, this concentration of wealth and, and these people aren't spending it right. as much as I should say. Right, right, right. So there's normal person rich and then there's rich person rich, uh, which is kind of a, it, that seems like an alien universe to me, but do you want to go over those numbers too? Wei Lu, again, our data guru told me that, that super rich is going to be like the top 5% of household incomes. And that was about a little over $206,000 in 2014 for a household. The ultra rich is going to be like the top 1%. And for that data, I'm going over to uh, to EPI. They wrote this big, big report at the start of the year um, looking at income inequality trends for, for decades. For the U.S., the average income of the top 1% was about $1.3 million. If we want to think, think like out of your mind, Rich, like stupid amounts of money, Rich. <laughs> uh, the threshold there, the income threshold of the top 0.01% is $9.9 million. Uh, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. But when we come back, we will try to add some color to all these numbers that I just spouted off. You know, we want to attach real people to them and why we plebeians would even care after the break. What do traders want? To limit risk, access every opportunity and trade on a level playing field. Nadex Binary Options lets you set your maximum profit and loss before the trade, so your risk is always limited. Find opportunities in multiple markets, stock indices, commodities, forex, even economic numbers, and Bitcoin, all from one account and platform. Nadex is a CSTC-regulated exchange with transparency, free market data, and fairness guaranteed. Innovations the financial industry needs, and Nadex already has. That's why we think binary options are the future of trading. And it's here now at nadex.com. Futures, options, and swaps trading involves risk and may not be appropriate for all investors. To find out a little more what these people are like, like what kind of lifestyles they must have, we've drafted Caleb Melby, a reporter for our executive pay team, whose main job it is to try to figure out how much money people are making. And before he was with us here at Bloomberg, he was a reporter at Forbes, where he got the license to run around the country hunting for hidden billionaires, which he also does here. And before that, he was an intern in New York, living in the same dorm as me. Hello, Caleb. Hi, Tori. Hey, Caleb, what's going on? So what are these people like? I, I mean, it was interesting listening to you talk about that that, that top tier, that that million, what was it, million and a half? 0.01%. Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah. So so to give you a, a, an idea, like how much farther beyond that percentage point uh, y- you can go, I mean, uh, at at the Bloomberg Pay Index, we're, we're tracking uh, the 200 highest paid people, and uh, they're they're making each of them upwards of 20 million dollars a year. And when you were talking 
talking earlier about how they they spend that money on different things. Uh, they're they're putting in pensions. They're putting it in in insurance. I mean, that's simply because it's really hard to try to figure out how to spend all that money, and a lot of them really defer it, and often in uh, tax advantaged ways, um, sock it away for the future. I feel like it is not that hard for me to figure out how to spend a couple million dollars. Um, so I don't want to sound too sympathetic for them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't mean mean to be uh, to, to ask you to, to feel an overwhelming amount of empathy for them. These are very specialized problems. I, w- I was in one uh, billionaire's apartment about a month ago, and I, I I won't tell you who it was, but he was he was obsessed um, with trying to figure out how to pass his international company uh, on, onto his heirs in, in this tax efficient way and that's one of those things that you really see occupying their thoughts your 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 normal person is trying to figure out how to sock away enough for retirement and and for them it's how do i take everything i've socked away and and pass it on uh to the next generation of familial ownership caleb how many billionaires have you met in your life uh, you know, I, I, I've been to conferences where there's, there's dozens of them. So I, 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 at this point, who's your favorite? Who's my favorite? Uh, there's uh, a really colorful character out in Brooklyn. His name is David Walentis. He essentially built the neighborhood of Dumbo, this, uh, chic industrial neighborhood right on the water. And he, he's this really crass, funny brash guy who who who's the first to admit that you do not have to be a genius to uh make it in real estate and i uh, i find i find his honesty very uh very um exciting and and new and as far as billionaires go he's the sort of guy you can talk to and don't feel like you're talking to an alien <laughs> <laughs> tell us more about your job what do you do every day more often than not we are we are not meeting executives we are not meeting billionaires that's not what our day in day out looks like it does happen sometimes and and that's a, that, that's fun but normally people are not particularly interested unless you're talking about say Donald Trump uh, in talking about what they make or how much they're worth so we spend a lot of our time talking to uh, off the record sources former employees insiders uh, going through documents making FOIA requests to the government to um, unseal certain documents or acquire certain documents that help shed light on these massive fortunes that are at the center of uh, you know the world economy. You've met Donald Trump, right? Yeah, a few times now. Oh my god! And gosh. he's called you. What was what? What was for that that he called you? He, Donald, after uh, we published a story saying oh, Donald, that- you're on first name basis. <laughs> <laughs> Continue, <laughs> Mr. Trump. After we published a story, putting his net worth at $2.9 billion came out in, in the Daily Mail. And he, according to the Daily Mail story, said I was a dopey kid and wet behind the ears. Oh, my gosh. Um, great. <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, he's he's not, not a guy who, who takes uh, slights light, uh, lightly. So, certainly. Caleb, by the way, how much, what is Donald Trump's net worth uh, compared to the approximately $10 billion that he has self-reported? to the media 
So we, we put him at, at $2.9 billion as opposed to that $10 billion. And uh, one really big way to account for a large part of that gap is the $3.3 billion he ascribes to his brand value <laughs> that he considers like an, a line item all onto itself, um, which is certainly a, a really special asset to have. And when we talk to experts, we uh, they, they said that for like his uh, you know collection of golf courses, there is a, a Trump premium. It means something to play golf on a on a trump course and and that that's applied to our valuation of those golf courses but uh when you look at uh, certain things like say trump tower here in new york a lot of that is condos that he's since sold off long ago so you see that huge skyscraper you assume it has to be worth a lot of money and it is but there's actually hundreds of other people that have percentage chunks of, of what what a skyscraper like that is worth and what would you say that your brand value is, Caleb? Uh, my, <laughs> my my brand value is, I, I mean, can I get a Chipotle burrito? You're <laughs> a uh, <laughs> man after my own heart. So, Caleb, you and I have talked about this a little a little bit last week, but I was chatting with a friend, and he actually got a little a little hot and bothered because. Some of your colleagues, my our, all of our colleagues, broke this news about a Walmart Air being $27 billion poorer than everyone else thought. Right. And he was mad because he basically said, I mean, the like the Cliff Notes version is, we're being nosy. Why does it matter? They're still billionaires. And why would we like <laughs> splash this all over the front page of our website? So rude, et cetera. Um, there's no journalistic value in this. It's what a, is the journalistic value? It's a fair question. And as somebody who, when he was in college, imagined he'd be writing album reviews his whole life, uh, I like I, I definitely sympathize with him. But uh, the, the report that David DeYoung and Tom Metcalf put out on uh, Christy Walton and her son Lucas Walton, I, I encourage anybody to go out and read it. And the question as to what news value this has, I think, becomes, once you get past that headline number, pretty relevant. I mean, you have this family that controls what is currently, I believe, like the third, the second biggest company in America. Um, and how they divvy up that fortune and how they control it and in turn how they control Walmart Company, I think, is inherently newsworthy. And as you dig farther into that story, what David and Tom uncovered was this fascinating estate structure that helped uh, John Walton, Christie's uh, now deceased husband, essentially cut his tax bill in half. So when we're talking about policy in terms of income inequality, we, we need to look at the decisions we've already made as a nation in terms of the options available to the super rich for passing these fortunes on, you know, because one, once you, you move past that $5 million estate threshold, uh, t- big taxes start to kick in, and yet we still have all these loopholes. And I think if you drill into that story, beyond the fact that there's this guy who nobody's really ever heard of or talked about, Lucas Walton, who has most of what we thought was his mother Christie's fortune, what you see is this really interesting passing of the torch that helped avoid a lot of taxes for the Walton family. You know, I think this really comes down to the fact that it's really hard to know how much everyone's wealth is. You know, wealth is different from income. Income is what you make every year. But wealth is the amount of money that you accumulated over a lifetime. It's 
all over the place, often in multiple countries, if you're a rich person, the way uh, many of Caleb's subjects are. And so it's really, it's, it's not a very transparent universe. That's why I think your team, Caleb, is really cool, because you're bringing more transparency to this space. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, we I've talked to readers about our stories before, and some of them are just interested in those big numbers. Some of them are interested in those entrepreneurial stories. Some of them are interested in uh, those uh, the tax strategies, uh, the way they allocate that wealth, like you were describing, Aki. And probably um, for our readers, like keeping up with the Joneses, too. Like, I, how I, close am I? <laughs> it, absolutely. How, how, how close am I? I could be them. Um, if, if you dig into any major wealth story, There's almost always some element of luck, which I think keeps us all reading because we always hope that maybe we could have that, especially in the era of tech startups with unicorn valuations. We're all kind of hoping that we have that next billion dollar idea. Right. But I I feel like in today's society, if anything, people feel like they're even farther away from that goal of becoming rich than, I don't know, maybe people 50 years ago. I feel like that sense of the American dream really went down the toilet and 2008. Yeah, I, I get that sense too. But what, what what's interesting, only only ever having done this beat post 2008, is that um, a hunger for these these stories hasn't gone away for one reason or another. Hmm. Um, either because it feels so far away and so foreign, it, almost like it's a fairy tale. Maybe that's the case, or or maybe there's something aspirational in it. But readers keep on keep on coming to these stories in droves. Well, here's hoping that we all have the luck to be millionaires and billionaires one day. Or, Caleb, if you're the one who makes it, that you share some with me. I, I have Preferably some... Preferably in Chipotle <laughs> burrito. That would be a lot I, of burritos. I have some ideas right now. If Mark Andreessen's listening, I'd love to pitch him. Just, you know. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to Bloomberg Benchmark. We'll be back again next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and on Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Google Play, and all those great platforms. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And let us know what you thought of the show. You can talk to and follow us on Twitter at at Tori Stillwell, at Akiito7, and for our very special guest, Caleb, at Caleb Melby. See you next week. This episode was brought to you by Nadex. You know, any long-term investment is going to go through short-term dips and price fluctuations. Nadex binary options let you turn those short-term movements into trading opportunities. You decide your maximum profit and loss before each trade, so your risk is always limited. Trade stock indices, commodities, forex, even Bitcoin in economic numbers, all from one account on a CFTC-regulated U.S. exchange. Instead of just watching the market's ups and downs, turn them into trading opportunities at nadex.com. It's the future of trading, N-A-D-E-X.com. Futures, options, and swaps trading involves risk and may not be appropriate for all investors.